You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. So we're here in Piedmont Gardens, and I'm about to be treated to some musical stylings by Vangie Buell. On November 12, 1936, the Bay Area changed forever. That's the day the bridge connecting Oakland and San Francisco finally opened. The woman who you just heard playing piano, Evangeline Canonizado Buell, she was there on that day. Even though she was only four years old, her dad, who played in the U.S. Navy's marching band, brought her along for the celebration which included President Herbert Hoover. It also included an epic traffic jam that foreshadowed many decades of coming gridlock on the Bay Bridge. Flash forward 80 years and the eastern span of that iconic bridge was coming down. After November 2017, the demolition was complete and that span of the Bay Bridge was gone. But Evangeline Buell or Vanji, as she goes by. She was still here. This little old Filipina outlasted all that steel and concrete. She may be small and very sweet, but she's tough. She had to be. She lived through watching her Japanese neighbors and friends in West Oakland getting dragged away during World War II. She endured abuse and discrimination her high school, McClyman's, even made her drop academic classes in favor of essentially domestic labor training because that's what was expected of brown girls back then. But she didn't settle for what was expected. She marched with Martin Luther King Jr. She got a job at the Berkeley Co-op that put her in a position to raise funds for the farm workers during their historic organizing campaign. She became a professional guitar teacher training hundreds of musicians during the heyday of Berkeley's folk scene. And she even played concerts, or hootenannies, as they were called back then, with people like Betty Reed Soskin and Melvina Reynolds. Vanjie organized thousands, yes, literally thousands of events at the International House in Berkeley. And since retiring in the early 1990s, she's written or edited four books on Filipino history and culture, including an autobiography called 25 Chickens and a Pig for a Bride. One of the things I love about Vanjie's book is that it connects the history of the Philippines and the Spanish-American War and immigration and the growth of the Bay Area's Filipino community. It connects all those things to her life and her family. So you get to understand the personal side of these major events. See, her grandfather was one of the Buffalo soldiers who, and you know what, I'm going to stop myself right there, because this is Vanjie's story, so let's hear it in her words. Coming up next on East Bay Yesterday, the incredible life of Evangeline Canonizado Buell, and yes, she will be serenading us with another lovely tune. Just a quick note that I'm sorry about the sound quality. During a few parts of this interview, I talked to Vanjie on a very windy day, and you can hear some of that 
whipping wind in the background. I uh, did my best to cut it out. Hope you don't mind too much. Anyway, I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stick around. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling me a little bit about your grandfather, Ernest Stokes? My name is Evangeline Cananasato Buell, uh, and I was born here in California, in San Pedro, and then was brought up here to West Oakland at age six months. And what year was that? In 1932. Uh, and so I have lived in the Bay Area all of my adult life, especially here in Oakland, well, my up until my teenage years, and then in Berkeley, California, all of my adult life. And then now, as, as an elder person, I'm now living in Oakland, in Piedmont Gardens. And my grandfather was a Buffalo soldier, and he joined the uh, Tennessee Volunteers in 1898, and was stationed here at, um, in the Presidio, San Francisco. And just for anybody who doesn't know, uh, Buffalo Soldiers was a name given to the black or African-American regiments in the Army back then, right? Yes. Yes, the Buffalo Soldiers are the African-American soldiers who uh, fought in the Spanish and Philippine-American War. And uh, he was stationed in the Philippines through the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War and stayed on because he married a Filipina. And uh, Can, let's pause there for a quick second before we get into your grandfather's family history and what he ended up doing in the Philippines for many decades when he ended up staying there after the war. I know this is a big question, but can you give the listeners like a little mini history lesson, like a little crash course in the Spanish-American War and then what happened in the Philippines afterwards? Because I feel like in order to understand the history of Filipinos in America, you have to understand that chapter of history. Well, as I understood it, the Spanish-American War was that the Americans came and took over the Philippines because the Spanish had occupied the Philippines for 400 years, and that's how it got started. Uh, So my grandfather wanted to leave the United States because of the terrible uh, discrimination and prejudice that he went through along with the other soldiers. There were about 600 of them. Uh, and he wanted to see what a life would be like in a, in, a, in a foreign country where he could be treated as an equal. But that didn't happen there because, well, the, the Caucasian sa- uh, soldiers treated them like savages as they, as they did the Filipinos. And so when the uh, soldier, uh, African-American soldiers were to shoot the Filipinos, they did not. They would aim their guns in the trees or down into the bushes, but they would not shoot the Filipinos because they felt that they were treated in the same way that they were as, as savages. Right, yeah. because my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what happened was that after the United States defeated Spain, people in the Philippines wanted to be independent. And instead, the United States basically said, no, we're going to come in and be the new colonizer, and we've got an army to enforce that. Yes, so they colonized the Philippines, and the Filipinos had to learn English, and and they had to, uh, well, their education was by teachers from from the United States. And so that's why they learned English, and they learned it very well. So at any rate, my grandfather 
married a Filipina and stayed on. He about about a hundred of the soldiers didn't come back to the Philippines. They stayed on for another 20, 30 years. Oh, you mean didn't come back to the United States? Yes, didn't come and back. Was that mostly the black soldiers? Yes, there were about a hundred of about a hundred of them that stayed behind and married Filipinos and, and raised families there. And so that's how my mother, uh, there were three of my, my grandfather had three daughters and one of them was my mother. So she was half black and half Filipina. Then my mother married a Filipino, and that was my father, Estanislao Canonizado. Yeah. So. so how did it come that you were born in California? How did your family come to the United States, and what eventually brought them to Oakland? All right. Well, my father was in the Navy. He joined the Navy in the Philippines in 1917. Uh, and when he came over here, my mother was already here because she was married to uh, an American black soldier, but she also had an American citizenship because of my grandfather. And that's where they met. They met here. Because her husband, when she came, when my mother arrived here, her, her, her first husband died shortly after. So when they uh, got together and, I, and she was pregnant with me, my father was stationed down in uh, San Pedro. And that's how she went down there to have the baby. That was me. And after she had me, they came back up here to Oakland, California. And that's how I was raised in West Oakland. I see you've got a copy of your memoir open right now, which is called uh, 20... 25 Chickens and a Pig for a Bride, Growing Up in a Filipino Immigrant Family. And what I would just like to say something about West Oakland, I called it Adobo, Linguisa, Tamales, Blues, and Jazz on Magnolia Street. And that was really what, uh, uh, the feeling of, of West Oakland at the time of the for, in the 40s. And you grew up on Magnolia? I grew up on Magnolia Street uh, in an old Victorian house. And um, people were from the immigrants, the melting pot of immigrants were from China, Italy, Japan, Mexico, and Portugal. And there were African-Americans and Czechoslovakians and Filipinos, Greeks, and Spanish, Basque, uh, sprinkled in. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about the Filipino community during this era? How big was it? Where did, was it spread out throughout the Bay, or was it mostly in, you know, concentrated in certain pockets? What kind of jobs did people do? Okay. I'm just, I'm just looking for that figure on uh, the number of Filipinos here. Okay. When my parents arrived here in, 19, in the 1920s, settling in Oakland, California, there were approximately 3,000 Filipinos, including few families scattered throughout the East Bay and the outlying farms like Bay, Bay Farm Island and Alameda. So that was back when Bay Farm Island was actually a farm. That's right. Uh, and many of them were single men working on the farms, some as domestics in the homes of the wealthy, others in hotels, laundries, and restaurants, and some lived and worked in Chinatown or were stationed in the nearby military bases like my father. Mm -hmm. And as children, we learned to call these hardworking men manongs, a term of respect for our elders. And manong is the term for the woman, for uh, respect for the elderly woman. Okay. Manong and manong. And you mentioned in your memoir that there was about 20 Filipino men for every single woman. Was that as a result of the immigration policies? Yes, because they were, the men were not allowed uh, to bring wives over. And the women, the, the women that did come, 
came not with with husbands. They came for other reasons, either for uh, education or like my mother who came as a, a, a citizen because her father was a citizen. And you talk in the book, too, about a lot of the discrimination. I mean, just so many different forms. Employment discrimination, housing discrimination that people face. And another one that people might not be as familiar with now is the laws that prevented mixed-race marriages. The miscegenation law. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. um, Filipinos were not allowed to marry whites. They were allowed to marry Mexican blacks uh, and other Asian women, but not whites. So when I married, I was going to marry my husband, the law was still on the books, and it was around 1952 when it was finally completely taken off the books. And was your first husband white? Yes. All three of my husbands were uh, Irish-American. I married three Irish-Americans, not all at once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking as an Irish-American, I think you've got good taste then. (laughs) um, (laughs) You are too, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. The last name is O'Donoghue, so pretty Irish. Um, So when you first started dating your first husband, was that like a concern? Was the law still on the books back then? Yes. Wow. Oh, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, uh, we knew other uh, couples who were uh, mixed, and they had to go out of the state to marry. Oh, my God. Because it was still on the books here in California. Like I said, it was completely taken off by uh, 1952. Hmm. I had to change my wedding date. We were going to marry on June 1st, and we couldn't because the books were still there. It was still it had not been taken off. Oh, my God. It wasn't taken off completely until June 14th, which is the, the day we married. So as soon as the law was off the books, you guys sealed the deal, huh? Right, and that's what we did. So, I mean, another uh, just really disgraceful chapter of history that you mentioned in the book is the story about how during World War II, there was, of course, the the roundup of Japanese and Japanese Americans and when they were, your friends and neighbors were sent off to the quote-unquote internment camps, you know, these mass incarceration facilities, and you had to wear a button identifying yourself as Filipino. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, we were absolutely devastated to to see our friends leave because I saw them getting on the buses to to be taken away. And they were, you know, very close friends of my grandmother, uh, well, and of my parents. And I remember my grandmother crying. And then I started crying because I'd learned that they were being taken away so then after they were gone, uh, the Asians, Chinese, as well as Filipinos, had to wear buttons that said, I am a loyal Filipino-American. Otherwise, we were discriminated against because people didn't know one Asian from another, and we were always mistaken for being Japanese and everywhere we went. And so we had to wear those buttons. And I remember my grandmother would just be very upset if we went left without it. So she had extra buttons for us to wear. And I remember shopping in, uh, in one of the stores and they wouldn't serve us and they would not let us buy rice. And then we took out the buttons and, and put it on and then they finally served us. And these were stores like Safeway yeah. at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that those early experiences with this discrimination are why you and your family became such uh, big supporters of the civil rights movement? I was, primarily, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think what really got me started was in high school. 
he, right here at McClyman's High School in Oakland, the English class for uh, the children of color was to learn how to do domestic work. They took away our English classes. Uh, we couldn't uh, have literature, and instead we had to learn how to iron clothes and how to wash clothes and so forth, because they said that, you know, we're not going to do anything else but domestic work anyway. So there were several teachers who were very much against that, that system, and they took those of us who wanted to go to college and tutored us on their own time, volunteer time after school. And they worked with us for, I mean, really good, for a couple of years. And that's how I was able to pass the test to get into college was because they tutored us. But that's how I got started in, 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 in civil rights. Well, I, I want to follow up by asking about your involvement in civil rights and, and your continuing education. But before we get too far beyond your childhood, I, I did want to ask about the title of your memoir, 25 Chickens and a Pig for a Bride. What's the story behind that title? That's quite a, quite a mouthful. Yeah. Well, that's a true story. Um, well, th there's a custom in the, Philipp in the Philippines that uh, of a, uh, you off the man offers a dowry uh, to the family. And when I became 18, this Filipino man from Stockton felt that here's a young Filipino that I, that's eligible now to get married and maybe I can have a chance, an opportunity to marry her. And then that's when he came to my house and offered my dad the 25 chickens and a pig for uh, his hand to marry me. And <laughs> the thing that's incredible about that story is not just the offer, because I know that this was, you know, a common custom. Uh, you know, it, this has uh, happened in, in my wife's family as well. But um, that he actually brought the animals with him. They were sitting in his truck, right? Yes. <laughs> All 25 chickens and the pig sitting in the back of the rumble seat of the uh, car. He was, he, yes. was, he was ready to uh, sign the contract right then. Huh? So you... Um, you started going to college at San Jose State, right, in the early 50s? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, I was there for um, two years, and I met my husband there. He was uh, a professor at Stanford and came over to San Jose State to teach uh, uh, classes. And he taught one in economics, and I happened to be in that class, and that's how I met my first husband. Wow. Yeah. And one of the first dates that we went on was to uh, see Paul Robeson and Pete Seeger oh sing in a hootenanny in a big old warehouse in San Francisco. And that was in 1952. And it was a fabulous concert. And that's when I fell in love with folk music. I was already uh, you know, playing an instrument. And that's when I started playing guitar because my husband played guitar then. And we really enjoyed uh, folk music. And I learned from him. But at any rate, uh, when we decided to get, when we got married and we were on our honeymoon, I wanted to go back to this discrimination thing that, yes. and why I got started. Mm -hmm. Another reason for why I got started in, the civil, in working on civil rights movement, um, when we were returning from our honeymoon, uh, there was a police car behind us uh, in, uh, just as we were approaching Carson City in Nevada. And it followed us for a while. And then, once we sped up, it sped up. 
behind us. And my husband said, you know, I'm really following the, uh, uh, you know, the rules here. I'm not, I'm not speeding. I'm, I'm driving the, the limit. And yet this police car kept following us. Finally, they turned on their siren just as we approached Carson City and, and pulled us over. And they said, you're arrested. And they arrested us because my husband was with a woman of color and they decided that I was a prostitute because I was with a white man. And that's what I, we were arrested for. I was arrested for being a prostitute, quote, yeah. <laughs> unquote. But at any rate, uh, they held us there for a while. And it was just fortunate that uh, my husband's brother put the uh, marriage certificate in the glove compartment of the car. And we had said, you know, we don't need to do that. But fortunately, we had it with us. And, it, and my husband uh, asked to go to the car, and he got the marriage license out and proved that we were married. Because he kept saying to them, we're married. This is my wife. This is my wife. And they wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't believe us. Uh, so, at any rate, it was a terrifying experience, and especially for me. And uh, uh, from then on, I always carried that uh, marriage certificate in my car, even when I married the, uh, later. Yeah. I kept all. I never traveled without it. So, so you, after that, you were determined to fight for, you know, racial equality, racial justice. What did that look like throughout the '50s and '60s for you? How were you involved? Well, I was involved in different ways. Um, I marched with the Martin Luther King when he came, and I, I worked on different uh, programs. Like, well, I was with the Filipino American National Historical Society and worked on uh, getting the information out about Filipinos, what we were, what we were about, who we were, and how we were giving to our community. And especially in, in my, on my job, I worked for the Consumers Co-op of Berkeley yes. and also International House. But in, in the Consumers Co-op of Berkeley, I was able to do things like breaking down the barriers by showing people how all the, about the different kinds of foods, to learn about all the different kinds of foods that, from the different cultures, and especially the Filipino culture. So people got to learn pe about us in that way. So those were the kinds of things I did in order to help people to understand who we were and what we were about. Can you tell me a little more about the Berkeley Co-op? Because I know that this was kind of a huge institution in Berkeley and very influential as well, but I think a lot of, especially younger listeners, probably aren't very familiar with what the co-op was. Yes. Well, the co-op was owned and uh, operated by its members. We had about, I think there were nine co-ops here in the Bay Area, and... Um, and we had about 400,000 mem 400, members. And uh, the, the co-op was started in about the 1930s here in, in Berkeley. And it was uh, formed by the Finns uh, and the uh, university faculty. And, they put to and the, together they formed the first co-op store. And, uh, when, when you say Finns, do you mean people of Finnish descent? Yes, because oh, okay. yes, there was a large Finnish ah, population in Berkeley. Uh -huh. And so, and that's how the co-op got started. Mm -hmm. And again, it's one member, one vote mm. in, in, in the principle of, of uh, organizing and, and running the co-op. And it was basically like a way to 
do bulk purchases of food to reduce the prices for everybody, right? Because you right. kind of were taking the profit out of the equation. Yeah, what they did was that you you got your you got a co-op number and you would use it, and you at the end of the year, if there was any profits, then it would be distributed to the members mm. of, of the co-op. I heard yeah. people used to brag about how low their number was yeah, to prove how long yeah. they'd been a member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was so, sort of a social kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and a status thing. And yeah. through the co-op, you ended up organizing like Black History festivals and raising money for the farm workers and stuff, right? That's right. Wow. And people like, for instance, we would ask them to use the farm workers co-op number so that the patronage refund at the end of the year would go to them, and we raised over $75,000 for the vote. And I worked with the farm workers to do that, because uh, we had farm workers outside of the co-op uh, uh, with tables to, to get signatures from uh, members to help raise funds. Let's talk about the Filipino role in the farm worker justice movement a little bit, because I, you know, of course, Cesar Chavez is the most famous figure, and people like Dolores Huerta, and uh, there was famously the Bracero program that brought a lot of Mexican farm workers into California, but the Filipino community was deeply involved with the farm worker oh, community from absolutely. early on. Tell yeah. me about that. Well, yes, because the farm work, I mean, the, the, it was the Filipino farm workers that were the main part of the of, of agriculture here. They worked lo alongside with uh, uh, Chavez, Cesar mm -hmm. Chavez. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked with uh, Pete Velasco, who was his secretary of the farm workers. And he and I worked together here at the co-op to raise funds and, and to have people aware of, about especially boycotting the grapes. And the co-op was one of the first stores to boycott grapes for the farm workers. The Filipinos and the Mexican workers worked side by side, and that was uh, uh, Philip Veracruz, uh, Cesar Chavez, and Pete Velasco. And they were the, the three that headed up together in getting the union, uh, helping to get the union started. So you were born in the United States and raised here in the East Bay, lived here for almost your entire life, or maybe, I think your entire life actually, but you've, you've vis have you visited the Philippines? And, and if so, can you tell me about that? Yes, I vis visited it three times. Mm -hmm. And the first time was in 1995, 94, and I was there for six weeks. And we were there to uh, talk about uh, our experiences here as American Filipinos. Uh, and we did uh, some exchange with the different schools. And we also went to the uh, most remote area of the Philippines then, and that is in, uh, up in Sagada, which is about 3,000 miles high, and it's in the uh, rice fields. Uh, the, and you could see beautiful rice terraces, and it took uh, almost uh, uh, seven hours to get up there because of the very, very rough, narrow, narrow road. And it was just a terrifying experience because there were 3,000 drops on both sides on this wow. narrow ledge. Other than being terrified by the roads, what was it like for you to go to this country of your, you know, your family's origin for the first time and, and while, when you were in your 60s? Yes, it was, it was a both a very emotional uh, experience because my parents who came here were never able to go back to the Philippines. 
and there were many like that. So when I landed there, I cried for them that I, I felt like I'm feeling teary-eyed now. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had returned for them. And it was a, just a, a very emotional feeling. But I loved it. And then I went back a second time because I was invited to the uh, conference there to talk about the Filipino-American experience and what happened to the Filipinos here because many of them didn't know. They thought that they were uh, in a land of money and that, because you know some of the men who worked in the farms were very proud of what they were doing but they were so discriminated against that they couldn't talk about that and they couldn't share that with their families in the Philippines. So they would send photographs of them all dressed up, you know, in wonderful clothes and, you know, looking really great like they're living in the land of plenty. And so people there thought that money grew on trees. They really did. And so uh, I was glad to be able to share with them what really happened here and, and, and how the Filipinos really kept their dignity no matter what. And, you know, I mean, no matter how humiliated they were by, by the uh, discrimination and the prejudice that they endured, they, st- they persevered and uh, they raised their families and they took care of one another and they survived. Mm-hmm. And so I managed to get the, those, that message across to them. Why weren't your parents ever able to return to the Philippines for a visit? Well, the war broke out for one, yeah. uh, and they didn't have the money. Yeah. Uh, they were, they, you know, the, they didn't make very much money here. And just think about the farm workers who were picking tomatoes. Twenty-five cents for one large crate of tomato of, of tomatoes. Twenty-five cents. That's what they earned. And I mean, think about what a plane ride would cost at at that time. And then when the war broke out, then there was just no contact with the Philippines. So they just yeah. never had a, the opportunity to go back. How did World War II change the Filipino community in California? Because I know that there was a big increase in immigration from the Philippines after the war, right? Yes, right, because that's when my aunt came over in 1956. And even sooner than that, some of the, a lot of the other Filipinos came. It was an interesting because you, then we now had two cultures of Filipinos. We had the Philippine culture and then the American Filipino culture. And that was sometimes they didn't mix very well. Tell yeah. me about that. The, a lot of the Filipinos who came from the Philippines, they uh, thought that we were supporters of Marcos mm-hmm. because we were Americans and we had an accent. And then they also felt that we were not Filipinos because we had an accent, mm. an American accent. Mm. And those, those were some of the things that, that was, you know, a, a problem at the time. And I had to try to break that barrier down because I would hear them. Because, see, I understand Tagalog. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, heard, I would hear them say these things in Tagalog. And, and, and they didn't think that I, that I spoke it or understood it because of my accent. Mm. Yeah. So were those, um, I guess, sort of conflicts eventually, did they sort of die down? Oh, yeah, those, they, it died down. I mean, I, I work now with Filipinos here. We have quite a few here from, who were born and raised in the Philippines. Yeah. And we just share our, our experiences, and it's just, and it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of these racial identities, you're part African-American. Your grandfather yeah. was black. Uh, you grew up in West Oakland, and you mentioned that it was a very diverse community. 
Did you feel like part of the black community there as well? Did you have black friends growing up in West oh, Oakland? Yes, I had quite a few black friends because and I was a major black uh, uh, influx from the South because of the World War II because they worked in the, field, uh, in the uh, shipyards. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of families. And, oh, I just loved it. I learned about the food. I was <laughs> and, oh, the music. And the music was just fantastic. That was one of the things that... I loved the spirituals, uh, and I learned to sing them. I learned blues, jazz. Uh, my father was a fabulous jazz musician, and he, uh, as well as a classical musician, and he would take us to hear Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, Louis Armstrong, you name them. I saw all, all of them fabulous. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and so I learned about the music, and I learned to sing the blues, and uh, as well as my Filipino songs and Mexican songs. I mean, that's West Oakland. Well, I've seen some of your family photos in this book that you helped put together, Filipinos of the East Bay, mm -hmm. which is sort of an overview of local Filipino history um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the research process for that book. You grew up in the Filipino community. You're, you've got roots that go so deep here. So what did you learn during that process from interviewing people and gathering all the photos for this book? Oh, it was, it was an amazing experience because I, I discovered uh, uh, Filipinos that I didn't even know about, and especially the cover of the book. This is what I found. These photographs were... Can you describe the cover for yeah. the listeners? Yes, the, it's called Filipinos in the East Bay, and it has uh, Filipino pilots, air pilots, right. in the front. And they're standing in front of one of those old-school planes with the propeller in front. That's right. Yeah. When was that photo taken? That was like from the teens, right, or something yeah, like that? Somewhere in the, in the 1920s. 1920s. Yeah. yeah. Well... These photographs, when we when we interviewed the Filipino families to do this book, these photographs came from underneath their beds. They had boxes of photographs underneath their beds. They had them in their closets, and out came this photograph. And that's, you know, one of the. I mean, that's what I learned. I learned I didn't even know about these pilots. These pilots uh, did the. Uh, you remember when they started uh, spraying? Oh, like crop dusting? Crop dusting yeah. and all that. And that's what they were doing. Wow. And, and they did other kinds of things, too, on, on with their planes. And then I learned that these pilots, who they applied for commercials, and they couldn't get it because they were Filipinos. They couldn't get a commercial license. And during the war, they wanted to, to fight on the... Uh, uh, oh, like for the Air Force? Air Force. Yeah. And they were not allowed because they were Filipinos. Mm -hmm. And they were fabulous pilots, just fabulous. And so that's what I learned in, uh, in, that, in this whole project, discovering all these different photographs that, that I didn't know about in terms of what they did here. Because, you know, I was a little girl when they were doing a lot of this yeah. stuff, so I yeah. found out. And then all of the connections that they had, too. Well, it's a great book because it mixes family histories with um, sort of more national and international stories, like, for example, how um, the 
U.S. government promised Filipinos who fought in the mil- U.S. military yeah. citizenship and benefits, and then they reneged on and that they promise. Reneged on it, yes. Right? But yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention about this is that this book is, shows the development of the Filipino-American community in the East Bay. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an interesting progression because in the beginning of the book, it shows a lot of people, you know, working on Bay Farm Island and things like that, doing this farm work. And then by the end of the book, it's people who are musicians and doctors and lawyers and teachers and all, you know, it really shows that, um, yeah. you know, with the struggles that you fought in, you know, right. the success of those struggles. One of, one of the other things I learned uh, was that the performers here, uh, that, that I have photos of performers here, and I learned that they could not ha- have special parties in, in re- they could not uh, uh, rent a room in the re- recreation centers to have parties to do, you know, family weddings or whatever. They were not allowed. Mm-hmm. And I learned that when I worked on this process. Wow of putting this together. Well, I was surprised to learn that one of the facilities that a lot of the Filipino gatherings did take place in was the Jenny Lind Hall, which is on Telegraph. I lived about 10 blocks up from there. That's the only one, and we used to go there all the time. But many of them, I mean, when and just they, for anyone, just real quick, anyone who wants to know where that is, it's right where uh, First Fridays take place now, right near the intersection of uh, West Grand and Telegraph. Oh, okay, but yeah. that's where we used to have all of our dances, parties for weddings, uh, uh, birthdays and so yeah. forth. Yeah. I think it's owned by like a Buddhists, uh, a, like a Buddhist organization now. Yeah. I believe. Uh, well, I was going to say that what I learned from doing this process here is that many of the uh, uh, weddings and uh, special parties were taking place in the homes mm. because they could not rent uh, recreation halls or uh, re- restaurants. So all those uh, yeah. pictures of the pig roast, that was just in people's backyards? <laughs> right, yeah, just wow. about, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, looking at those made me hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at this part of the interview, Vanjie and I went off on sort of a tangent, talking about some of our favorite local Filipino food. Uh, she digs Fob Kitchen. I'm a big fan of Lucky 3-7 on Fruitvale. Shout out to the G-Fire Wings. Uh, but anyway, she ended up playing a few songs for me. And uh, just as I was getting ready to leave, she wanted to tell me one more story. And it's not a particularly happy memory. In fact, it's pretty brutal. I wasn't even sure I wanted to include it in the show. But I've decided to. Because I think it's a powerful example, not only of the challenges Vanjie's had to face, but also how she's dealt with some truly horrific things. You'll hear what I mean when she gets to the end of the story. And I think this attitude is why she still seems so positive and strong going into her ninth decade on this planet. Here's Vanjie. You know, I wanted to say something about the Filipino community, uh, and that is that there was this wonderful bonding and taking care of one another because they didn't have social services in those days. And if there were, they were not uh, given to uh, to Filipinos. So if anything went wrong, like for instance, uh, I'll tell you this story. My grandmother, we were in Isleton, California, and we were sitting in the car and one of the Filipino men 
because, you know, women were so scarce and they really, you know, if they saw a Filipino woman, they were just just thrilled to see. And of course, she was married to, to my uncle. I called her, you know, her, her second husband, uncle. And uh, he came to the car and he says, I want you to go with me. My grandmother was sitting in the car in the front seat and I was in the back seat with my sister and cousin. She said, no, I'm not going with you. And uh, he said, I want you to run away with me. And I heard this in the back and I got, I really was just frightened. And uh, at any rate, he stabbed her because she wouldn't go. And uh, I, was, I was just terrified in the back seat and we were just screaming because you know, he was trying to get her to go with him. And she said, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. And we could see that, and I, and my uncle was in, wasn't there. He was in inside the uh, place gambling, and so I ran in there, and there were no children were allowed in that place. I, and I kept yelling, "Uncle, uncle, where are you?" Because there were a bunch of men all gambling, and he heard me. I said, "I said, Grandma's hurt. Grandma's hurt." And he ran out of the place, and and he took one look at her, and oh my God, she was bleeding. And there was no place to go. This was in the middle of, you know, nowhere, Isleton yeah. at the time. Yeah. And so we got, so he got in the car and, uh, and we rushed her to Susan, Susun, Susun, uh-huh. where they had a hospital. Yeah. And he told us, to, to the three of us, he said, now you stay in the car and do not come out of the car, just hide. Because, you know, they didn't serve Filipinos in some of these hospitals. And so he was worried about whether she was going to be, you know, taken care of there. I remember my uncle just grabbing clothes, anything to go, to put on her bleeding stomach. So he we, he rushed her in there, and fortunately uh, there was a doctor uh, on duty, and he was not prejudiced. Just we were just fortunate, and he he took care of her, bonded her up, and of course. They couldn't call the police because the police would not have done anything. So, at any rate, he, he would, they, they, the doctor was able to take care of her, got her bandaged, and we got home. And this was already like 3 o'clock in the morning. We got her in the house, and my uncle assured us that she was not dying. And so, the next day, I remember my uncle rushing out of the house. He said, now you stay here, don't move, don't answer the door, don't, because he was going to all of his friends, and he got the word out that they were to help guard my grandma, because they they did not arrest this man. You know, he's still loose, and he might come back and, and try to do something to her, or to any of us. Yeah. And so that's when I learned about the Filipino community bonding together to help support us in any kind of trouble. And he, because he had to go to work and we had to go to school and we didn't want, we didn't know whether he was lurking around and that he would bring friends, you know. Oh and, and we couldn't call the police because they wouldn't have done anything for us. So all of these friends came to the house, they, they cooked for us, they stood guard. And when my uncle was at work, two to three of these Filipino women would come and stay. And, and the, it just, the, the entire Filipino community here in the, in the East Bay were just so helpful. And that's what they did for, for one another. Uh, oh my God. Yes. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Vanji Canonizado Buell. From a distance, the world looks blue and green. The snow-capped mountains white. From a distance, the ocean beats as a stream, and the eagle takes to flight. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace. It's the voice of everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I'd like to thank the Berkeley Historical Society, Evelyn Rodriguez, the Oakland History Center, and Stephen Levinson. As of this taping, there are still a few tickets left for my upcoming boat tours in uh, May, June, and July. I take people out on the bay, tell stories, it's BYOB, always a good time. Anyway, you can find links to those tickets at my site, eastbayyesterday.com. And uh, if you want to know about my other upcoming events, sign up for the newsletter while you're there. And uh, if you can afford it, hit that donate link too. I'd really love to keep this show ad-free, and the only way that I can do that is by getting more folks to sign up for my Patreon. Uh, Those of you who are already donating, thank you so much. I'm grateful for every single dollar. Uh, As always, if you can't afford to donate, please help spread the word. If you like this episode, tell a friend, uh, put it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, tag me if you do. That would be really wonderful. Uh, All the music for this episode came from Vanjie Buell, and uh, that was amazing to hear her play. Uh, That's about it. I will see you soon with another episode of East Bay Yesterday. Bye. It's the voice for it.